okay, 9.30, time to go. <laughs> Finally. Starting in the fourth quarter, can you believe it? This is October. Where did the other three quarters go? So now you are blessed with me, I guess, for the first half of Romans. We're only going to do Romans 1 through 8. So hopefully the goal, uh, talking to Eric just a few minutes ago, hopefully that will help us slow down, have some good participation. I will just say this. I do not intend to be the third sermon of the day. Um, I want this to be participatory. It's a class. And hopefully through comments and uh, just various questions, comments that we have, that you have, um, we can learn from each other. Because that's really what the purpose of a class is, is to learn from each other, have different perspectives. Uh, so uh, just so that you know what my, I guess, my expectation is. Uh, I don't want there to be a whole room full of lumps on a log. So, no sooner had I made, started making copies of the material than I found out that the gospel meeting got changed. So, your syllabus is not correct. So, don't pay attention to the syllabus. Okay? So, if you want to go ahead and mark it so you know where we're going, but I just felt like we can all adjust. Uh, so I think in the actual syllabus that you have, November the 6th is the gospel meeting with Kevin Clark. That's not right. It's actually November the 20th. So you just sort of move up the lessons two weeks and it's no big deal. We'll just get through it. But I didn't want to throw away a whole bunch of paper. I like my trees. So just wanted to make sure we were good on that. Okay, so go ahead and let's get started. Uh, as we move through the book, or half of the book of Romans, Romans is, to me, a fascinating thesis of God's plan of salvation and how that plan then affects our behavior. That's really how it's divided when you think about it. When you look at, say, what chapters 1 through 11, it's all about God's plan of salvation, God's sovereignty. Then when you move from 12 into the rest of the chapter, uh, rest of the book chapter to chapter 16, it's about the the effect that God's plan and all the things that God has done, that Christ has done on our behalf. What's the impact to our life and how should we live? That's Romans 12 through 16. We're only going to look at Romans 1 through 8, sort of the first half if you divide it. And, and that really covers a, a, a couple of things. So let me just talk about just concepts that we, we will look at in the book of Romans uh, now and then when we move into the, um, the, the other part, uh, I guess Q1. So when you think about these broad concepts, you're gonna be, we're going to be looking at the, the magnificent or the mag magnitude, rather, of man's sin. And notice the word I said, magnitude of man's sin against God. So that's one of the broad concepts. The second thing that I want to really focus on is the supremacy of God's love for man, that he provided a way of escape from the penalty of those sins that man committed. We're going to be looking at God's righteousness. And the, and, and the question then becomes, you know, if God is righteous and him being righteous then demands that he punish 
those who rebel against him, then how can he be, maintain his righteousness and then but save some? Does that make sense? How can he be righteous uh, in, 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 in that work? So we'll look at that. We'll also look at the path of man's justification. What is that path? What is the path that God has laid out by which he can remain righteous, by which he can remain just, but then justify uh, certain men? And then the other parts of Romans really focus in, when you get into Romans 9, it's God's sovereignty. He is God. And then, as I indicated earlier, the, sort of the behavior. How does all of this impact or affect our behavior? And so, in Romans 1 through 8, we're going to be looking at those that are highlighted. And that's not to say that the concepts of God's sovereignty and, and what God expects his people to do aren't interwoven throughout the book. And that's not to say that those uh, concepts that I've highlighted aren't in the second half of the book. But there, there does seem to be a, um, a focus more in chapters 1 through 8 on those ideas, concepts that I've highlighted versus the latter two. So with, with that said, I, I want to look at some key words that as we look through the book there are some key words that continue to just pop up. They continue to reoccur throughout the book. And so as we look through this, one of the things I really want us to think about is what is God communicating to us? He wrote the book to the church at Rome, and we'll get, we'll get into that in just a minute. But that doesn't mean that doesn't have any impact or bearing on us in 2022. So when we think about these key words, what's God communicating to us? What does he want us to take away um, from this? And why are they recurring? And so, you know, and they're in no specific order, but sin, the gospel, faith, justification, sanctification, grace, righteousness, salvation, and then obedience. So those are the words that I sort of found that would just continue to occur. And I felt like, okay, God's telling us something by these words continuing to reappear. So we'll get into that as we move into the, the study. So weekly briefing. If you look at the syllabus, you'll notice in the middle column of my syllabus that there's what I call a weekly briefing. And I sort of took that concept from business, okay? Because if you're in the business world, you'll be, and, you're, and, they're, and management is wanting to communicate something to associates, then you may have a, three paragraphs of information but they're going to give you an executive summary kind of thing. What's the key takeaway? What's the key message that they really want you to walk away with? That's what this is. Some, you know, if I start babbling for 45 minutes and you don't have a clue what I'm saying, then at least this weekly briefing is the key message. That's the key takeaway. 
that I really want you to walk away with. If you get nothing else out of my babbling or comments made in the class, that's the message, okay? And so the message today is quite simply this, that the gospel of Christ produces an obedient faith, an obedient faith that then... um, in the one who believes resulting in salvation. And so we'll talk more about that as we go through chapter one. But I did want you to understand what is this weekly briefing um, that, um, that, that's on the syllabus. And, and I'll have this message throughout the, the quarter, the specific uh, briefings, the messages that I want you to walk away with. Okay. So, with that said, let's move into just, I guess, a brief introduction of Rome, uh, the church, and the epistle. So, when you think about Rome, what do you think about? When you think about ancient Rome, and you may go back to the movies that you've seen or things that you've read, but you may have heard the term City of the Seven Hills. It was built on seven hills. Um, and, and I'll go ahead and say this. The second point that I made is, well, let me just say this. It was the largest city in the Roman Empire, had approximately a million people according to estimates, and some people even think it could have been as high as three to four million people. That's a huge city today, okay? Much less in the ancient world. So it was huge. When you think about it being the capital of the Roman Empire, what do you think about? What do you think about when, you, when I mention the Roman Empire? What do you think about? Power. power, yes. And so when you think about the capital of the Roman Empire, it's sort of the source of where all the power comes from, okay? And you know, in our world, what's the equivalent of that? Washington, D.C., the White House, the Pentagon. But it's a source of power. So think about that when, in, in just a minute. But what I read is up on the hills where it was a little bit cooler is where the, op, where the opulence, the rich people lived. But down in the valleys, you had immense squalor. So it was it's sort of like a dichotomy of, of two cities, really, within one. A lot of wealth from a few and a lot of poor, and that was really the majority of the people were slaves in, in this city. It had magnificent buildings, a road structure. When you say all, leads to, all roads lead to Rome, there's a re- reason for that, because they had built all of uh, th- th- this great road system, but if you got lost, guess where you'd wind up? You, you'd wind up in Rome, because that was literally the way the, the, the empire was built. Side of 400 plus temples, more than 400 temples in the city. So when I communicate that, when I say 400 temples in the city, what, is, what does that come to mind? Idolatry, which then leads you to what? Immorality. Immorality. So you had this great city of a million plus people, in enormous... Uh, wealth from a few, but great immorality uh, because of the, uh, the 
idols in the, the temples. And I couldn't help but think about Romans and the description of the great harlot. So I want to go ahead and turn over to Revelation for just a minute because I feel like it can give us a picture of the city in which this church is in and then also some of the messages that Paul is addressing to the Romans. And so notice... And I'll just, I, we, we can't read, for sake of time, we can't read the entire chapters of 17 and 18. And understand that Revelation is a book of imagery. And so this may be depict, depicting, this great harlot may be depicting Rome, but it represents any great city of, of immorality, okay? So let's just get a picture in our minds. Um, and so come here. Uh, I'm in verse 1, chapter 17, verse 1. Come here, I shall show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth commit acts of immorality, and those who dwell on the earth who may drunk with the wine of her immorality. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns, And the woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a cup, a gold cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her immorality. Then go over to chapter 18, verse 2. And he cried out with a mighty voice, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, and she has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit and a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the passion of her immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth for her sensuality. What is the picture that John is giving us of this city that he's depicting as this great harlot. It's influence, influence, it's power, it's influence uh, around the known world, okay? He even mentions the, the merchants. So we have this great wealth and everybody's benefiting from all of this stuff going on. But what is it? It's just full of immorality and idolatry. That's the picture of the city of Rome that I want you to have. Because when we get over to the church in Rome, I think it speaks volume to these people. Okay. First, let's talk about when it was established. Don't know when it was established, but it was an established church, meaning these were not new converts. When you go over to, I have uh, chapter 1, verse 11. Let me get back to Romans. Chapter 1, verse 11, notice Paul uh, tells them, For I long to see you in order that I may be, uh, may impart, well, let me go back. Uh, It's 13, I wrote down the wrong verse. And I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented thus far in order that I might obtain some fruit among you also. So he's been... He's been wanting to go to Rome for a long time. And then if you even go to 15, chapter 15, 
in verse 23. I'll just go to verse 22. For this reason, I have often been hindered from coming to you, but now with no further place for me in these regions, and since I've had for many years a longing to come to you. So again, this is not a new group of people. These are not new converts. This is a church that's been there for a while because Paul's been wanting to go and see them for a while. And in fact, it's been there long enough to where they have great faith. And that's uh, verse 8. And I'll come back to that in, in just a minute. But when we think about it's an established church, it has both Jew and Gentile. And that's going to be an important thing to note as we go through Romans, especially when we go through chapters 2 and 3, which is coming up, I guess, over the next couple of weeks, or the balance of chapter 1, 2, and 3. So, uh, they're Jew and Gentile, and and just, uh, I've got some passages up there noted to, to, for reference when chapter 2, verse 17, he specifically says, you and then qualifies it as the Jew. And then back in, in chapter 11, verse 13, he mentions, he, he's then talking specifically to a group of the Gentiles that are in the church. So we know it has both Jew and Gentile. But I really want to focus on their great faith, verse 8. Because when you think about the picture that I just painted for you of Rome and its evilness, its immorality, uh, and the opulence, Versus the squalor. But yet, what does Paul say about this church? They've had great faith. Okay? Uh, and so, it's t- to the point of their faith has been proclaimed throughout the whole world. This was a church that was known for its faith. And I find it interesting that this is a book that is focused on an obedience of faith. And we'll get to that coming up as we start dissecting the first 17 verses of the chapter. So my takeaway would be, yeah, they have had great faith, but Paul wants them to know even more about the faith that they have, about the faith that's been delivered to them, the gospel, okay? So, with that said, let's talk a little bit about the timing or the epistle itself. So, um, obviously, Paul wrote the epistle, and he wrote it from Corinth, from all indications. And it seems like he wrote it during his third missionary journey. So, let's sort of paint the picture of... The, 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 the timing. So if you go to 16, chapter 16, I said 16, but it's actually 15. Sorry. My printer printed the wrong verse. I'll have to get a new printer. Uh, so 15... Let's start with verse 24. Whenever I go to Spain, this, so this is Paul writing to the, the church there. Whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my way there by you, when I have first enjoyed your company for a while, but now 
I am going to Jerusalem serving the saints for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. And yes, they were pleased to do so. So I'll leave the rest to your reading. So he is on his way to Jerusalem. And it, so it seems like that he is... Oh, and then also when you go to... Uh, verse 23 of chapter 16. Notice there are two people who are mentioned. In verse 23, Gaius hosts to me and to the whole, whole, uh, whole church greets you. So he's actually with Gaius. And then he mentions a, a, a man named Erastus, the city treasurer, greets you. Well, Erastus this was the city treasurer in Corinth. There's actually a plaque or whatever, some stone or inscriptions that had been found in some Corinthian ruins. So it's believed that this Erastus, who was the city treasurer, is this same one. So it appears that he is in Corinth writing this epistle to the Romans. So now, if you go to Acts... And we'll just spend a couple of minutes here. <clears throat> so when you're looking at Acts and you sort of piecing these things together, beginning in verse 21 of Acts 19, and, and Acts 19 is on the third missionary journey. He is in Ephesus. But notice what's going on. So now after these things were finished, Paul purposed in the spirit to go to Jerusalem after he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent the Macedonian, sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. So then you notice in chapter 20, that Paul finally leaves. He departs to go to Macedonia. And then notice verse 2, and when he had gone through those districts, he had given them much exhortation, he came to Greece. Where is Corinth? Greece. And so from there, then he uh, sets sail. He goes to um, back uh, to, to Troas, and then he goes on to um to Jerusalem. So it's believed, it's thought that while he's in Greece here in Acts 20, verses 2 and following, that is when this epistle um, was written. Um, so that just gives you some, some th things to think about. Um, obviously, we don't have written uh, from Paul on the actual letter AD, whatever I'm writing this from, Corinth, but you sort of put pieces together uh, of what we are given in Scripture, and you can make some conclusions. So, now, let's go into our questions for the balance of the morning. So, let's go to Acts 1. No, excuse me, Romans 1. So, Romans 1. So, when, when was the gospel promised? Yes, it was beforehand through the prophets. So go to verse 2. So, he, you know, Paul identifies who he is. 
He's an apostle. He's set apart for the gospel of God. And then he goes from there, that thought to say, this gospel isn't something new, but it's actually been promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture. Well, then you start scratching your head. Well, let's sort of think about this. Where, where is that? So first off, let's think about the harmony of the Gospels and the harmony of the Bible, because where else do we hear or read about the fact that God had a plan from before the foundation of the earth to save man? Well, we'll see that, yes, if you connect some dots. But point blank, where does it say? Before the foundation of the world. Do what? Thank you. Ephesians 1. And so when you look at Ephesians 1, we see that God's plan of salvation wasn't an afterthought. It's something that he had in place before he even created the world. And so here we see... God has promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture that there was going to be this gospel. There was going to be a path, good news that would be preached to man by which he could be saved. So let's go ahead and let's think about this. When you go to Isaiah 40, because let's, let's say, okay, Isaiah 40, what, where, where are these passages, these prophecies that are referenced here, could be the ones referenced. But when you think about Isaiah 40, and again, we don't have time to read all of it, but I do want to point out some things in Isaiah 40. Notice verse 3. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness, make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. What is that referencing? John the Baptist, okay? So we've got, we have this. Notice verse 7. That, okay, let me, let me back up. So John the Baptist. John the Baptist did what? He prepared the way for whom? For Christ, thank you. And so in verse 7, notice, I'm going to go back to verse 6. A voice says, call out. Then he said, then he answered, what shall I call out? All flesh is grass and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows upon it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Get up yourself uh, on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Why do you think I'm emphasizing good news? It's the gospel. And so does, this, does verse 7 sound familiar? First Peter. And what's it, how does Peter use this passage in Isaiah? What's he describing? The gospel. Okay? So when you put these pieces together, yeah, the gospel was prophesied in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament. God was preparing his people for the good news that was coming. Okay? Also, I want you to think about Isaiah 52. So let's briefly go over there. (coughs) 
And I really wish I could, we could maybe make, do some more uh, connecting of the dots. But notice verse 7 of Isaiah 52. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who bring good news, who announce peace, and bring good news of happiness, who announce salvation and says to, God, to Zion, your God reigns. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. They shout joyfully together, for they will see with their own eyes when the Lord restores Zion. We could go on um, for there, from there, but does this passage sound familiar? Romans 10, thank you, because that's exactly, and so that's exactly what it is. And so what is Romans 10 all about? The gospel, yes. And so, and so Paul is setting forth some ideas here immediately in two verses, what he's going to be talking about in this book. And he'll come back to some of these concepts throughout the book. The gospel, that it's God's plan, that it was prophesied uh, in the Old Covenant. Bruce. There in Isaiah 52, down at the end of the chapter, uh, in verse 20, about my servant shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Mm -hmm. And then in uh, verse 15, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Yeah. So here brings in the Gentiles. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, thank you. Okay, so... <clears throat> So when you go back to Romans, so let's go back to Romans 1. So he goes back and he says, this gospel is promised beforehand through his holy prophets in the scripture. So who in the church there would have recognized that fact? The Jews, okay? So keep that in mind. So now concerning his son, what is the focus of the gospel? Jesus. Jesus is the focus who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. So again, what's he focused on? Who would know that? The Jews, because they've been told all these prophecies that there's this Messiah coming. It's going to be descendant of David. Were there prophecies on that? Yeah, we can go back to Isaiah, back to Isaiah and other passages to look at and show that Jesus was to come, this Messiah was to come from the root of Jesse, would be a descendant of David. Okay, and then notice how was he proven to be the son of God? Through the resurrection. What did we even study last week in, when we were uh, going through 1 Corinthians 15? That if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then what? Why are we even here? Okay, because he's no different than any other man. But he was raised from the dead and declared to be the Son of God. And again, what, you know, even in 1 Corinthians 15, how, who spoke of the resurrection? The prophets. Right? Remember, the, the verse fifteen even talk, uh, chapter fifteen of First Corinthians even says, just like the holy prophets spoke of the gospel, the holy prophets also talked about the resurrection. And you can go back to Acts two and look at the prophet, prophecies back in Psalms um, that are referenced here that talk about the fact that the that God would not allow His holy one to undergo decay. 
So we have all of these prophecies supporting the gospel, the prophecies supporting the resurrection of of Jesus that would declare him to be the Son of God. So through this fact, I didn't ask this question, but what was made possible because of this fact? Salvation, also notice in verse 5, through whom, meaning through Jesus, through this resurrected one, guess what? We have received grace. Now here he's talking specifically about, I think, the apostles. Grace and apostleship to bring about, notice the phrase, an obedience of faith. And that's really where I got sort of the subheading of this study, is because the focus of this this book is the faith, is that we are saved by faith, faith in Jesus, okay? And so, uh, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among whom? All nations, among the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you also are called of Jesus Christ to all who are beloved of God in Rome. So I want to, to, for us to realize that this obedience of faith is made available to Gentiles, but who is it also made available to? Jews, right? I think I heard somebody muffle a Jew out there. So what does that do? Brings both together. That's exactly what I was looking for. It unites all men. All men are in the same condition, right? We'll see that later coming up in the end of chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3. But there's one thing that can connect everyone, and that's Jesus Christ through this obedience of faith that we can have through him. Okay? And I, and I want you to also... Think about this. Go to, go, go to Romans 16 before I leave this idea of the obedience of faith. <clears throat> Notice that Paul concludes the letter using the same phrase. And so beginning in verse 25. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for the long ages past, but now is manifested and by the scriptures of the prophets. Again, he's going back to the, to the prophets. According to the commandment of the eternal God has been made known to all nations. Okay, this obedience of faith to the only wise God through Jesus Christ be the glory of God. And so again, this this concept of obedience of faith is what unites men that in the salvation that's possible through Christ. And so we'll delve deeper into what is this obedience of faith as we go through uh, the quarter. So question four really talked about describe the reputation of the church at Rome. We've already talked about that to some extent Um, So I won't belabor that point. But what did Paul long to do? He wanted to see them in person. He had been wanting years to get to them, to to be with them, to meet them. 
And because he wanted to do what? Impart spiritual gift. I want to make a comment on that. But what else did he want to receive? Encouragement. You know, I found that pretty interesting. Because here we have an apostle (laughs) being encouraged by other brethren. And, you know, we sort of think about Paul and Peter and some of these other apostles sort of, I don't know, we get this concept that they're somehow special, and obviously they are. They were chosen by God, if you, Jesus. You, you see what I'm saying? But from, a, but from a spiritual perspective, they're just people. They're just men with same struggles that we have. They were not perfect people, but somehow I think we sort of idolize them to be perfect But here he's feeling like, if I can just get there, I'm going to be so encouraged by this group. And I will encourage them, and they will encourage us. What does that say about the value of being together? It's extremely important. The value of being together, of assembling together, of being with each other, it gives us encouragement one with another. And isn't that part of what Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 is all about? When we come and we assemble together, we're intended to encourage one another, to edify, build each other up. And that's this concept that Paul is talking about here in, in Romans 1, about him really wanting to get to Rome, to meet these people, and to be encouraged. Now, I want to go back to this idea of why he wanted to go there was to impart some spiritual gift. Were these Christians... They were. Did they have spiritual gifts? Apparently not. So what I, where I'm going is when you think about certain religious groups thinking that, you know, you're baptized, you receive some gift or in, in, in uh, special uh, possession of a, a spiritual, of the spirit or a spiritual gift, you sort of know where I'm going. Um, but that's not the case here. And w- in fact, what else, why would it have been necessary for Paul even to come for them to do that, to receive some spiritual gift? Yeah, and this is something where you conclude Paul had to go there in order for them to be, to have some spiritual gift. We see the same thing in Acts 8 with, you know, uh, Peter and John. They had to go to impart spiritual gift we see that, again, I think, in Acts 19. So, you know, that, that's something that we can conclude from this passage and other passages that when we're baptized, this gift of the Spirit is not some miraculous infest, manifestation of the gift, of, of the Spirit, rather, in us. So I just felt like that was an interesting observation to make when you are talking uh, to others who may uh, believe in miraculous uh, gifts of some kind, this would be a passage that you can go to to help them understand that we don't have apostles today. So there can't be some giving of spiritual gifts. Another one is Acts 10 when uh, Peter was still speaking the words, 
that you know mm -hmm. Gentiles should have uh, that the Holy Spirit fell on those yeah. who had heard the word, and then he said, "Who is going to? Can anyone <clears throat> forbid water for this yeah. to be baptized?" So yeah, same thing. Yeah, thank you. Okay, so real quickly before in the minutes remaining, going to question. Um, let me go to um, question. Six, real quickly. What was he under obligation to do? To preach the gospel. And you know, what command did God or Jesus give his disciples on before he ascended? Go out into the world. Yeah. And so this eagerness, this obligation that Paul felt and he and the others felt. I think that is a lesson for us in what our feeling should be toward others, that we have this desire, this obligation to, to tell the good news to others. Just thought that was an interesting uh, perspective, this, this word obligation. He's indebted almost is the, is the word, is the wording here. He wanted to preach, he felt obligated to preach it to Greeks, to barbarians, but then also to preach it to Rome, preach the gospel to Rome. And so why was Paul not ashamed of the gospel? <clears throat> it's the power of God for what? For salvation. So now, <clears throat> you know, I couldn't help but think about 2 Timothy and the bell may ring, but I know Matt will hold off or whomever's ringing the buzzer will not ring the bell right now. <clears throat> so when you go to 2 Timothy 1, verse 6 and following, <clears throat> Paul is encouraging Timothy not to have the spirit of timidity. Notice in verse um, seven. I'll just start there. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Therefore, <clears throat> do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose. So, Paul is encouraging Timothy to be confident, to be assured, not to be ashamed, not to be timid, but to have that faith and confidence in the power of God. It's not anything that the person does. The power is in the message, not the messenger. And so same here in, in Romans 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel is the power of God for salvation both Jew and Greek, because what is it able to do? It's able to save, but how is it able to save? Faith, right. So you have this message, which is the faith that was once delivered, because you think about Jude 3, how is the gospel described? It's described as the faith which was once delivered to all. And that is able to produce what in man? Repentance and obedience, but what? Faith. 
the faith that was once delivered was able to produce, is able to produce the obedient faith that God expects of man in order to be saved. And so now we hear, or we can read in verse 17, for in it, in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Okay? So it's the faith of man in his submission to this gospel, the good news that, that has been preached that is able to save man. Tolly. I've always tried to figure out from faith to faith. Mm-hmm. The faith is the gospel, is able to, and that's G3. That's why I mentioned G3, that the faith that was once delivered, that's clearly meaning the gospel. So the gospel or the faith is able to produce a saving faith in man. So that's, that's, that's how I'm understanding. Now, others, you know, please speak up if, that, if y'all have a different uh, view, but that to me is what is being said. The righteous man shall live by faith. So this gospel that's able to save man must be able to produce this saving faith. And that's what, that's what we see the gospel able to do. Roger. You're saved by grace, grace. through faith. Mm-hmm. So you've got to have faith when you're saved, but you also have to live a faithful life unto death. Yeah, and that's absolutely, and we'll see all of that trans, uh, you know, transpire revealed as we go through this entire book. And so next week, as we begin in chapter, excuse me, verse 18, we begin to see Paul's logical, for lack of a better word, argument of how he proves God's plan of salvation. Okay, so that's where we'll begin next week, verse 17. Okay, I guess the bell has rung. I didn't hear it, but...